united, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. In a week that has been dominated by news and speculation about Donald Trump's COVID-19 diagnosis, we thought that we would move a little bit away from talking about the president, but still talk about a lot of issues that are pertinent to the 2020 presidential election. We're kicking off this episode of Barely Getting By and American Carnage with a discussion of the American healthcare system before talking about a critical Senate race that could see one of Donald Trump's key allies deposed and could potentially see the Democratic Party taking back control of the Senate. We're also going to talk about the Watergate scandal and the press's role in exposing President Nixon's nefarious deeds leading to his resignation in 1974. Last of all, we're going to be talking about voter suppression, a chronic issue in American politics and one of the key reasons why Americans don't generally turn out to vote in their presidential elections. Emma and I thought there's a lot more to be said about American healthcare, so we focused on that in this week's newsletter. If you'd like to sign up, there's a link in the show notes. So there really is only one story this week, and that is, of course, that Donald Trump has been diagnosed with COVID-19. He has had a short stay in hospital, and at the time of Emma and my recording, he has returned to the White House to recuperate. I'm pretty sure that everyone will have heard possibly more than enough about Donald Trump's COVID-19, probably heard enough speculation about what this means for the presidential race. So I was quite keen to get a little bit away from that and talk about a story this week that I think reflects another, that comes from another angle and reflects in quite a different way on Donald Trump's struggle with the coronavirus. So this is an article from the New Republic, which describes in great detail the experience of a woman named Maria, who is an undocumented immigrant in the USA, and her struggle to obtain effective treatment first for the coronavirus and then for its later effects as she became what's been known known as a COVID-19 long hauler. So someone who's continued to experience symptoms and continued to experience adverse health effects long after the initial disease has passed. So... That's, yeah, that's what I wanted to start with today. Okay, and I I think, Chloe, I can kind of guess where this story is going in that Maria probably hasn't had a lot of luck in obtaining coverage for, particularly, I imagine, for the long-term effects of the coronavirus. Yeah, and I think, you know, and that kind of points to where I want to go with this because I think that we do have a very... We have an understanding in Australia of just what of what inequality looks like in the US healthcare system. But one of the real merits of this piece is that it goes into such lengths and such, you know, quite harrowing detail about what accessing healthcare, decent healthcare looks like for someone in Maria's position. And I want to talk about this because, you know, we also know that at the moment Donald Trump is receiving world-class health care. And I think it is really striking to draw that comparison between his experience of COVID-19 and the assurance he has that he will receive the very best medical care available and the experience of someone like Maria who is who, who struggles to access even the most basic of medicines. Yeah, for sure. I think often when we talk about the American healthcare system in Australia, we focus rightly on that inequality and on the inability of people to access healthcare. But we shouldn't forget that at the same time, there's this kind of simultaneous healthcare system that is, as you say, Chloe, it's it's the best in the world. And as much as I think we we kind of understand that gap, it's actually it's worse than we think, isn't it? It's it's worse than it is far worse than we think if we are working from a straight comparison between Australia and the US and you know what what poor people and marginalized people in Australia can expect of our healthcare our, our healthcare system and what the wealthy and the privileged and the well connected can expect there just isn't that mag- there is a discrepancy of course but there isn't that magnitude of discrepancy and difference between the level of healthcare that they can access and when you say that, yeah, the USA has the best healthcare system in the world for some, that it reminds me of 
my surprise that a lot of people were surprised when the US's COVID-19 response from the very first days of the pan- pandemic looked like it was totally inadequate to the situation. It, you know, the USA does have one of, it has the best healthcare system in the world for people who can afford it and who are in a position to access it. For the rest and for the vast majority of Americans, it, it simply, that's, that healthcare system may as well not exist. And that's what this, the COVID-19 pandemic has really revealed. Yeah, and I think the the comparison thing is is really interesting because of course that's always our inclination to to compare the US healthcare system with our own. But the other comparison that I've been asked to make a lot, um, and it's of course because the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is one of the other you know prominent global leaders that has been struck down by this virus. The the UK comparison I think is an interesting one as well because arguably Australia and the UK have more in common and maybe that's kind of the comparison that we should look to instead of us in the USA. Well that's uh, yeah and I I know and I think you know it is kind of a it's in one sense it's an imperial holdover for us to continue to compare ourselves with the UK it's also I would argue an imperial holdover for us to continue to compare ourselves with the US but you can take me on that later. Um, So I think the the comparison with the UK is in some ways misplaced because what I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand is that the NHS in principle is a lot better than Australia's Medicare because it is genuinely free healthcare at the point of access. So there is no such thing as a co-payment in the the NHS. So it's a much more, it's a more universal and a much more equal system in principle. The problem with the UK's response, I suspect, and you know, this is what most, I guess, informed commentary is saying, is that the NHS has been absolutely gutted over, you know, so you, so if you can, if you can access the NHS, you will still receive a very high standard of care, but the NHS itself has been gutted over the last 10 years at least. And in the case of the of the UK's COVID nineteen response, it's you know its failure has is is comes from a combination of government incompetence and low and it's, you know the low priority that it's placed on emergency healthcare as compared to say getting the economy and I'm putting that in air quotes back on track and also the decision to outsource a lot of the COVID-19 care functions and the particularly the the testing and tracing system. So I yeah, I, I mean it kind of blew my mind and I also had to laugh, you know, in a really I guess embittered what the hell has happened to the world um way at the discovery yesterday that the UK had missed on I think I add on I think it was something like twenty five thousand cases that needed to be traced because of an error with this Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, the... that's I mean that's the Excel spreadsheet that they were using to manage their test and trace system. Yeah, this is it like uh, absolutely astounding, and a lot of the coverage has framed it as an IT glitch, but it's not a glitch, is it, Chloe? I. I don't think so. I think it was it was genuinely that they were using columns in an Excel spreadsheet to record these cases and they ran out of columns. Yeah, it's just, I, I, I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about in too much detail because it is just utterly horrifying, the kind of level of incompetence that we are talking about in the UK and then, of course, across the Atlantic. Um, and, and this has happened, you know, to get back to the, to the US, the the collapse of the of the US health system or the, the its inability to, to deal with a global pandemic came, you know, despite the fact that Obama's signature policy was Obamacare, was an effort to reform healthcare in the US to, to make it a little bit more equal, I suppose. But what this has done, and I think that the article that you're talking about, Chloe, has it has exposed is just how inadequate those reforms are. And, and that those reforms are, are under attack, you know, as we speak, the Trump administration is, is in the courts trying to, to undermine things like coverage for pre-existing conditions, which, again, will have flow-on effects for patients like Maria who have these kind of long-haul symptoms, um, which I guess kind of raises the question of what a potential, and again, you know, this is a big, big if, what a potential Biden administration would do on healthcare. Yeah, well, the, the article is it's, it's extremely specific on this. Maria is not covered by the Affordable Care Act, which is also known as Obamacare, because it doesn't extend. It, it, it is not 
available to undocumented immigrants. So she is one of hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Americans who is not covered by Obamacare. And it is interesting to look at what Biden would do on healthcare because this is one of those places where we can see those really strong tensions within the Democratic Party and amongst progressives in America. So I'm sure that a lot of people will be familiar with the argument for Medicare for All, which is basically universal healthcare coverage um, granted by government. So universal public health care. And that's something that's been sponsored by the left of the Democratic Party. And, you know, it was a signature policy of Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden has, he's never, he's never supported Medicare for All, but there is evidence of his shifting leftward on this debate. So I don't think that he would ever sponsor it in that form, but he certainly is supportive of expanding access to access to healthcare. One of the key issues that comes up in this is about it's not not necessarily about the point of the the point of universal coverage because I think that that is at least amongst progressives and and their voter base the the principle of universal coverage is fairly well accepted at this point. The question is about the role of markets and the role of private healthcare providers. So should they have an NHS-style government-provided healthcare or should there be a role for private providers as there is under Obamacare and as there is in the in the current system which where, where health insurance is largely tied to a person's employer, which is an interesting ideological Point. You know, it is, it's about, you know, the question of pro-market, what role you see for the state and for the market um, in delivering social outcomes. It's also, you know, and I strongly suspect, and I think this is quite, um, you know, this reason speculation, it's also about the power of, of large health, private healthcare providers, sorry, healthcare, health insurance providers and their influence over policymakers. What one of the big stumbling blocks that a potential Biden administration would have in attempting to, to expand access and also to expand the government's role in healthcare would be Congress, because Congress has been very strongly support. You know, a Democratic-controlled Congress has been historically very supportive of a role for the market and for private providers. Yeah, and I think we we can't underestimate how much that is a profit driven system you know to go back of course to Donald Trump and all the speculation about the the drugs he's taking I think those two things are deeply connected one of the things we can underestimate here in in Australia is just how much profit that profit driven system drives what is also a highly interventionist system when you can afford healthcare the interest is in providing more drugs in doing more tests in in doing more intervention and that maybe I think gets missed a little bit when we're speculating about drug cocktails and how ill people are. Because again, you know, if you can pay for it, you can kind of have whatever drugs you want. Yeah. Oh, look, look, and I mean that that kind of brings up a point of anecdote for me is you know when I when I whenever I get paranoid about I don't know like a sore foot or whatever, and I immediately start googling to find out if I'm dying. You know, you'll always find this array of American healthcare health websites, which their first resort is either you know expensive drugs or surgery and then you know more often than not I'll go to the doctor and they'll, well, they'll say I'm fine and I'm just being you know being a hypochondriac or they will recommend a much more conservative treatment and that's you know I think that's yeah you're right there and that's that's kind of borne out by my experience of online medical paranoia. <laughs> totally and it, I mean it's my my very brief encounter with the US health system is is kind of very similar you know you get there and you're asked you know when was your last physical like when did you have your last annual checkup and I'm kind of going that that's not really a thing like you just kind of go to the doctor if you're sick or you need them but actually when you have coverage you have all this intervention happening all the time because again the the system is driven by profit and the way that you make profit is by intervening or by prescribing or or whatever you know despite the significant risks that will that can come with that and, and that is why, to get back to what you were saying earlier, Chloe, that is why Congress and the Senate in particular is also so beholden to the interests of insurance companies, of, of medical insurance companies in particular, because they are profit-driven, they make insane amounts of money, and a lot of that money goes back into Congress. It goes back into lobbying Congress people and the Senate, which is why Democrats as well as Republicans have this interest, have this kind of vested interest in keeping the markets involved in healthcare. And Emma, I think you you want to talk about the Senate today. 
Yeah, I do. Um, partly because, like you, Chloe, I'm I'm so sick of Trump kind of sucking all the air out of the room and us not having anything else to talk about. Also because I think it's, it's one of the things that gets lost, particularly in Australian coverage, is that there is actually a Senate election happening on the 3rd of November as well. It's not the whole Senate that's up for election, re-election. It's 35 senators who are facing election fights. There are a lot of really interesting Senate races happening because part of what Democrats need to do if they want to do things like reform healthcare or change, I don't know, anything at all about American politics is wing back Congress and win the Senate. The Senate has been blocking every effort that the House of Representatives has made around stimulus packages for economic recovery and things like that because the Senate is controlled by Republicans. So flipping that is really important. And and it's possible. It's certainly possible. Republicans are defending 23 seats and Democrats are only defending about 12. And they need to flip a net of three seats um, or four if Biden loses, because if they if Biden wins, then they have the, the presidency of the Senate and a, and a tie-breaking vote. What was the article you wanted to talk about? So the article that I, I focused on this week is from Slate, and it's focusing on one Senate race in particular between Lindsey Graham, who is a very prominent Republican. He's been in the news a bit lately, um, I think even in Australia, because he famously said that a in a in an election year, the Senate shouldn't be confirming any Supreme Court justices. And he has in in complete hypocrisy or a total betrayal, whatever you want to call it, totally flipped and said, yes, the Senate is going to confirm uh, a new justice. We're going to have a 6-3 majority on the court. So so this kind of r- ridiculous recording of his words is being played over and over again as a mark of his kind of political depravity. So he has an election battle on his hands, does he? He does. And, and it's a really serious one. So he, he comes from, he represents South Carolina, which is a reliably, unsurprisingly, is a reliably Republican state, hasn't elected a Democrat for decades, for literally decades. And Graham has been really busy kind of reinventing himself as a as a Trump ally, a Trump supporter. He was he was a never Trumper, you know, just a couple of years ago. And because of basically right wing challenges from the base in his state, he has become a kind of rusted on Trump supporter. It's a very familiar story. But now he is facing a, a real challenge in re-election. He, he has an enormously um, talented and charismatic opponent in Democrat, Jamie Harrison. And they, they had a debate um, just about a week ago, which of course has been completely overshadowed by other events. But it was kind of widely, I guess, Harrison was widely assessed with having, as having beaten Graham pretty comprehensively, I think. And they are now neck and neck in this, in South Carolina polls. You know, as much as much as we can rely on polls, they are incredibly close. And Graham is really, really worried. And, and he is not the only Republican who's in big trouble. I thought this article was particularly interesting because I think a lot of the time coverage assumes that Trump's rusted on supporter base will also support the candidates that support him. So because Lindsey Graham has gone all in for Trump and he did that, you know, to kind of shore up his base in South Carolina, those voters will come out and support him. But what this article is saying is that that's not necessarily the case. So Trump has basically completely taken over the Republican Party um, and remolded it in his image but the supporters he's kind of he's got are Trump supporters. They're not supporters of the Republican Party. So what Graham in South Carolina and, and other candidates in similar positions are really worried about is actually getting people out to vote. They're worried about whether those Trump supporters are going to come out and vote for them. And they're also facing real trouble with fundraising for similar problems. People aren't donating to them. They're donating to the Trump campaign, you know, if they are donating at all. So I think... Graham's what this article shows is that Graham's Senate seat is is really one to watch and it's the Senate is so important to this race because Biden could win the presidency but without the Senate much like it is now much like Obama faced in his second term after, after and after the midterms getting anything done without the Senate is virtually impossible so I'm going to do exactly what I said we wouldn't do in this episode, bring this back to Trump and his brush with coronavirus. 
just as of this morning, Trump is being very, very belligerent and, you know, quite offensive in the way that he's talking about coronavirus. You know, I think a lot of people have seen the footage of him standing on a balcony, I think at the White House and tearing off his mask. Is there, do you think that there's a risk that this belligerence, which is very clearly targeting Trump's base, that that will alienate the voter, the voters who Lindsey Graham would be hoping to attract? I think that's really hard to tell. It's it's tied up in that bigger question of how Trump's diagnosis will affect re-election chances. And, and as we've discussed, Chloe, that's kind of virtually impossible to predict. I think the Republicans, like Lindsey Graham, are really worried that that's exactly what's going to happen, that, that Trump's kind of lack of sympathy, his, his total dismissal of the long-term effects of the disease, which a lot of the Republicans' key demographic, which is which is you know basically older white people, are facing in, in being more vulnerable vulnerable to this disease and not having access to that first class healthcare. So Republicans are certainly worried about that. But I think it it all kind of depends on how the virus plays out in Trump as an individual. So he's already kind of taking this line of you know his hyper masculinity his virility you know he's so strong he's fought off this virus it's easy don't even don't even worry about it and if that works you know if that if that narrative kind of plays out if he stays healthy then I think Republicans can be assured that that those voters will stick with Trump if it doesn't there's kind of no telling really what will happen and, you know, I guess this is really bringing us to territory where neither you or I is qualified to speak, to, to speak. and that's Donald, the current state of Donald Trump's health and how he will fare in the coming days and the coming weeks. There has been an awful lot of talk about the role of the media in the Trump presidency and particularly, you know, how much responsibility the mainstream media bears for the rise of Trump. And and one of the focuses, I think, of of that discussion and and that criticism, I suppose, is so-called gotcha journalism. So this idea that one interview or one article in particular is going to bring down a presidency, which seems to be something that a lot of people can't let go of. So we thought today we would focus on the kind of historical epitome of gotcha journalism, which is, of course, Watergate. Now, Watergate is um, incredibly complicated as a story. And luckily, um, Chloe is the one who was forced to get her head around this. So I'm going to handball to Chloe now, who is going to explain to us what exactly happened with Watergate. Okay, so the... The most important thing to remember with Watergate is that there is Watergate and then there is the Watergate cover-up. So if you're talking about Watergate, that means, in theory, you're talking about June 1972, when five men broke into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in the Watergate building in Washington, D.C. They were, they were caught and they were pretty quickly connected to Richard Nixon's re-election campaign for the election that was in that year and which he won. The Watergate cover-up refers to the attempts by the Nixon administration to hide its involvement in the scandal, which Nixon knew about and which he very clearly approved of. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I burn everything I've got. Okay, so awesome summary, Chloe. <laughs> Nixon was involved, they got caught, and then tried to cover up, and it was the cover-up that was the, the undoing. And the media, of course, is, is central to exposing that cover-up. Yes and no. Okay, so this is one of those points at which historians and pundits have an ongoing conversation and an ongoing debate about the relative importance of the media and and in particular two young journalists, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who are working for the Washington Post in exposing the exposing the Watergate cover up and holding President Nixon accountable and eventually forcing his resignation from the presidency in August 1974. What when people talk about it as if the two journalists were absolutely instrumental and indispensable actors in this process of holding the president accountable is they often 
obscure the fact that there was an array of organisations looking into Watergate and the cover-up from 1972 right through till 1974. We had the Justice Department, we had Congress, we had a special Senate, a Senate Special Investigative Committee. And what happened is through those processes, the White House was... It was its attempts to obstruct that those investigations were what caused a constitutional crisis. So this is something that was happening very much within those institutions of American government that we keep talking about. And there was almost, I guess, kind of a separate media investigation going on, which, in my opinion, was less about exposing exposing things that were generally already known to the investigators who were looking into it by the time it hit the press, more about bringing it to light and bringing it to the public's attention. So I think maybe what you're getting at there, Chloe, is the role of recordings of Nixon. It's the Nixon tapes, yeah? Yes. I think, yeah, I mean, this is kind of turning into a bit of an obsession for us, isn't it? The role of media and technology in democracy and its proper workings. And yes, one of the things that's, you know, that is notorious from these investigations and from the Watergate scandal are the tapes, so the secret recording system that Nixon had set up in the White House and in the Oval Office that became, I guess, the centre of investigations trying to establish how much he knew, what his role was in the conspiracy to cover up the administration's involvement in Watergate and... So they, these tapes were central to it. In terms of the media, one of the things that they their release, their eventual release, because the White House was very resistant to, to first, I think, releasing a transcript of the tapes and then releasing the tapes in full to the public. In terms of the response to the scandal, these tapes were essential because they were what, to journalists' minds and to the public at large, revealed what was seen as Richard Nixon's absolute contempt of the office of the president and his contempt of democracy. Um, and part of the reason Nixon was so reluctant to, to let the tapes out was because he knew how much they would expose him um, for those things and just how, you know, uh, uh, obscene he could be as a person. Yeah, and I'm, 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 we're talking about this in the, in the proper sense of sanity. Like, there was a lot of attention on the fact that Nixon was heard swearing on these tapes. And again, it was this, you know, massive affront to democracy. And I think I mentioned before that there was a there was an actual constitutional crisis surrounding Watergate, and that in part centered on this this problem of executive privilege. Because when Nixon Nixon was resisting releasing the tapes, he was doing so on the grounds of executive privilege. And at this point, the Supreme Court got involved, and it was the Supreme Court that decided unanimously that the, that his executive privilege didn't cover the release of the tapes, and that was one of the factors leading to their being released. So, and I think where I'm going with that is that there's a, there's a really big difference in how these institutions were working in the 1970s compared to today. So we've spoken before on the pod about the Supreme Court and its heavy politicisation. And obviously, you know, the Supreme Court has always been a political institution, but this was an instance where it wasn't operating on a nakedly partisan basis. This was a unanimous decision. The other big factor that you know, people often don't talk about with Watergate is the role of Republicans, so members of Nixon's own party, in uncovering the scandal and prosecuting it through to the very end. So they were involved in the investigations from the start and their support was key to to the events that led to Nixon resigning. So they made it clear in 1974 that they wouldn't support Nixon in impeachment proceedings. That's right. And that, that of course, is the reason that he resigned, because it became very clear that that his presidency was untenable. But there was still an ongoing criminal investigation. Um, Nixon's successor, his vice president, Gerald Ford, though, issued him a full and unconditional pardon. Which I think is something that's worth mentioning just because there is, of course, speculation about what happens to President Trump when he leaves office given that there is this shadow of criminal proceedings on various grounds um, hanging over him. And I have heard it suggested, uh, this is a terrifying thought, that he might, uh, if, he, if he loses the election, 
um, he might pardon himself. Yes, would be which would be uh, yet another test, I suppose, of, of presidential powers. <laughs> the other one I've heard is that he'll resign early and put Mike Pence in so that Mike Pence can can pardon him. But we're I think we're probably getting into hypotheticals on uh, not hypotheticals here, <laughs> which is not territory either of us enjoy being on. Um, to get to get back to get us back to to media. And the media and Watergate. I think Chloe, it's you're absolutely right to to focus on the the Senate and criminal investigations um, and the role of those institutions in Watergate. But I think often the story that we're told or, or the story that we tell ourselves is that it was in fact the media that brought down Nixon, and it was two journalists in particular who did that. Yes. Yeah, so these are the two journalists, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who are at the centre of the Watergate gotcha myth. And they were also central to, I guess, consolidating that and consecrating it as this central story of American democratic politics in the 20th century. So they wrote a book very shortly after the after the whole Watergate scandal had erupted called All the President's Men, which was then turned into a film in 1976 starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. And that, I think, was one of the things that really secured them in the annals of American history. Interestingly enough, I think it is also a crucial moment in the history of conspiracy theory in the US because we can draw, I think, a pretty direct line but from the you know, from the figure of the actual anonymous whistleblower, Deep Throat, who was heavily implicated in he was a very very important source for Woodward and Bernstein, through to his fictional representation in that film, right through to, you know, cigarette the cigarette smoking man in the X Files, and to the present where we have you know, this, it's, I think it's easy to tie it to this notion of a deep state and this notion that there are always secrets at the heart of American democracy and it takes enterprising, rebellious figures and, you know, deep research to uncover, uncover them and their role, whether for good or for bad. Is, is there any truth to that myth, though? Do you think? Like, how, how important were Woodward and Bernstein to, to, this, to these revelations? No, and I, th- I think they were they were important in shaping the discourse around Watergate. And I think you can say that they were important in the sense that they kept up public pressure and they, you know, they kept the public informed when a lot of people weren't necessarily that captivated by the initial scandal in 1972. Um, they were also important in the sense of where they were working. So they're working for the Washington Post, which wasn't the national entity that we know it as today. It was very much, you know, a Washington insider's paper of record. So the fact that they were there as opposed to a different newspaper, a particular newspaper on the East Coast, was also important. But I think it's been fairly clearly established that the Watergate investigations and the proceedings, they had a life of their own and there wasn't that much information that Woodward and Bernstein were being fed that legislators and lawmakers and investigators didn't already have. So would the scandal have blown up on the scale that it did without them? I don't know. That's an honest answer. But I think that there would have been a serious investigation of these crimes, irrespective of press attention. Okay. And I guess more broadly than Chloe, what, what do you think are the, the consequences of all this? I think, well, the Watergate scandal, of course, it is, you know, a huge, it was, it was a, an issue of, it caused massive mistrust in government in the USA. And, you know, we also can't isolate that from the fact that the 1970s were a very turbulent time all over the world. And this was the period that was kind of resolved with the entry of Reagan into the White House and his promises of assurance and security and his, you know, inauguration of neoliberalism. And we've seen how that's ended up these days. Um, more specifically, I think that Watergate was important in the terms of how it reshaped the relationship between journalists and the White House. So, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, like a lot of people, when they were really they were first getting into their investigation, a lot of people thought it was, you know, a waste of time and that they were using a lot of investigative resources on something that wouldn't turn up much. And they kind of shamed their profession by the end of it and by the end of it with Nixon's resignation. So in its aftermath, journalists became more focused on accountability, but that's something that's become kind of twisted in the in the after the long aftermath of that because you know I think that's kind of the origin point for this very 
adversarial in you know in the worst sense relationship between journalists and the white house where we see where journalists on the one hand are very motivated by the pursuit of gotcha moments perhaps at the expense of the deep investigative work that people like Carl that people like Woodrow and Bernstein did and continue to do and also the response by the white house was to cultivate a culture of spin and deflection and real resistance to i guess working relationships with journalists. I'm not the only person who's saying this. In 2018, Carl Bernstein was reflecting on the on what journalism on his profession looks like today, and he said that he was really lamenting what had happened to journalism, saying, you know, it's something that focuses on glamorous gotcha moments at the expense of hard work like he and his colleague did. I think he said, this is a direct quote, the economics of the business is now the bottom line instead of the best obtainable version of the truth. But that in itself is kind of a problem. Okay, so that's really interesting that that Bernstein is saying things like that because his colleague, Bob Woodward, is is playing a bit of a different role. Is that fair to say? Well, that's the thing because the other side of, you know, this deeply invested public interest journalism which is really important but has been kind of corroded I'd say corroded by the profit motive is a journalist journalism that pretends to be totally non-partisan and just can you know just interested in establishing the facts and that's a tradition that Bob Woodward's career in the decades since Watergate has really exemplified so he continues to produce detailed accounts of presidencies including Trump's he's you know there's been some controversy in the media recently about the release of his latest book about the Trump White House and what what he does he writes these very 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 long dense books which are what you know kind of intended as the first draft of history as we put it but they also would position is that he very much refrains from making judgments or asking why things happen in white houses and who you know who's to blame for things that are bad you know so for instance if we look at if we look at the way that he covered the George W Bush's presidency and the events leading up to the war in Iraq he wasn't interested in attributing blame he wasn't even interested in a question of the war being something to be blamed for because he he totally avoided judgment on the war and its justice it's you know it's on the justice of that war yeah and and i mean he was criticized at the time for that and it, and it does seem like that is a um i guess one of those kind of throwback democracy things where it's yearning for for an era of of bipartisanship and civility that that maybe never existed and and that kind of approach to media doesn't doesn't seem to fly in this environment, Chloe? Well, less and less, but it's still something that a lot of legacy institutions are very much preoccupied by. I mean, the New York Times is probably the classic example where it's very, it's very effectively, you know, it's largely refused to be drawn into strident criticism of Trump. And it has, you know, it's, it, it kind of exemplifies the both sides approach. I saw the New York Times being commended a couple of weeks ago for finally acknowledging climate change as a factor in the the wildfires in the US's west coast because it has studiously avoided you know being drawn into what it's what it saw as a political issue rather than you know the planetary and apocalyptic disaster that it is um but on the other hand we also do see that there's kind of this almost a perversion of public interest journalism where journalism is elevated into this you know, this overstated role that it can't possibly fulfill. You know, there's so much weight placed on journalists and individual journalists as actors in democracies, which is how we get to a situation where every time some a journalist confronts Trump with one of his lies or, you know, the facts of the, of his record in office, we're, we're, we're told that, oh, this is the story that will undo Trump. I mean, I enjoyed the Jonathan Swan interview with Trump as much as anyone else, but I didn't expect it to, to actually do anything because we are this fine to the first term of the Trump presidency. There could still be a second. And journalism has done lit, very little to, to counter that. And also because I think that there is a sense in which we've kind of become resigned to it. So there's, you know, it's like 
we, we watch a Jonathan Swan um, interview and it's like a sort of a cheap balm for our aggrieved liberal souls and we can all feel better about the world for a minute and then, you know, Trump resumes and Trump resumes his presidency and everything goes back to this new and weird normal. Yeah, look, I, I obviously, of course, I think that's a, a really good summary. And and I think part of part of what's wrapped up in this is it is a a desire, I suppose, for American institutions to play a, the role that they have in the past. And that is tied up in the, the narrative that we tell ourselves about Watergate, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think that for all that Watergate was a constitutional crisis and it provoked a bout of soul-searching on, on the part of the USA that, you know, hasn't really been replicated until now, it's very different in that Watergate was a test of the American system and America passed that test. And that was, you know, largely because of efforts on, by actors all across the system, you know. I mean, it's an unusual thing for me to say I'm grateful for Republicans in the Supreme Court, but I am because they actually held to their constitutional and their democratic obligations. I think we have perhaps a similar situation today, but I well while I won't make any predictions about what's going to what's going to happen next, I'm considerably more pessimistic about what sort of good those Republicans and those Supreme Court judges could do in the present. So, Chloe, one of my favourite things about covering US politics is the way that Australia occasionally pops up in American coverage. So it does so in pretty what is a pretty horrifying way um, whenever there is an all-too-frequent gun massacre in the US. So uh, Americans look to Australia and gun control laws and write op-eds about how kind of easy it should be to do gun control. It also happens around universal healthcare, which is something that we've talked about, um, and every election cycle, we always get something about compulsory voting as well. And and this election cycle, um, my favourite example of that is Ron Howard, you know, happy days, Ron Howard, He's sort of a bit of a generation removed from us, but nevertheless, you know, still important to American popular culture sort of innocently tweeting out a question to Australian Twitter asking them asking us to explain to him how compulsory voting works and and getting kind of mercilessly teased but but also genuine explanations for for why it is that Australia has compulsory voting I, I think I I think I saw Anthony Green <laughs> The, the ABC's election head yep, replied yeah, to that. Yeah, Anthony Green and also the Australian Electoral yeah. Commission itself, pointing him to kind of handy explainers. Oh, really? Yep. Um, <laughs> so what I uh, – it, it's kind of interesting, I think, because, you know, Australia plays this weird role where it, it becomes this kind of unfathomable utopia to Americans with universal health coverage and gun control and compulsory voting. But what I wanted to do is, is kind of flip the script a little bit because I think from an Australian point of view, you know, we often forget that we are one of very few countries in the world that has enforced compulsory voting. You know, most countries in the world don't do that. Yeah, no, no, no that's absolutely right. And I was, I was looking at some numbers, which, you know, for all that we're kind of aware that Americans don't vote, it still seems quite staggering to me to read that, say, in 2016, only 56% of adult Americans who are eligible to vote voted in the presidential election. I think it was less than a quarter of those people were responsible for voting Donald for voting for Donald Trump leading to his election as, as the president. In 2012, 50% of adult Americans voted. In 2008, which was considered a high point for turnout in an American presidential election, 57%. Yeah, it is It is pretty horrifying when you, when you line it up like that, when a high turnout is 57%. But I think it is worth emphasising because it does ex explain a lot about the kind of tactics of American politics. You know, we hear so much about Trump's appeals to the base and why Trump is, you know, trying to shore up the base. And that's precisely because a huge part of getting elected in America is actually getting out your base. It's getting people to voluntarily go to a polling place and potentially wait in line for hours in order to vote for you. You know, that's why we see such huge get out the vote campaigns, you know, being run by like famous um, NBA players and things like that and people pouring money into those campaigns because 
representatives or candidates, sorry, need as many of their supporters as possible to get out to vote on election day, which is something that the Australian political system just doesn't have to contend with. No, it's not It's not something that we have to contend with, but I would say that it's something that we see more and more, particularly on the conservative side of politics, is these more, more and more concertedly divisive and highly partisan appeals to on the right, which is a get-out-the-base tactic that doesn't really necessarily work in a, you know, in, in a situation where you have compulsory voting and there all, will always be a counterweight to that. And it's, it's almost like it is, you know, it, it's feeding a cultural culture war and feeding polarisation to no good end or to no, to no, you know, ultimate end for the right policy, except I suppose the satisfaction of delivering their message loud and clear, which is an interesting thing to look at because, you know, the, the, when people make the argument around polarisation and why polarisation is a bad thing and they'll point to the fact that the um, the Australian system tends to deliver much more stable governance and much more, you know, I guess kind of stable centrist uh, policies. But that also comes with its own risks, doesn't it? Because I would also say that, you know, for all, for all its faults, the American system also the UK system, they can also throw up these enormous moments of radical hope and, you know, radical ideas that tend in a progressive direction, say with the Corbyn movement or with Bernie Sanders. The, you know, the guarantees that compulsory voting and that sort of trend towards the centre gives Australian politics is not necessarily that good for progressive thinking and for, you know, kind of the radical ideas that we might need at a time like this, a time of extreme, you know, I guess extreme world crisis and i mean i think that's always the risk with with comparing systems is is you tend to you know for want of a better phrase assume that the grass is always greener and i think what we're sort of saying is that there i don't know there are problems with with all systems and and i think to to sort of go back to you what you were saying about the the potential importation of these tactics into australia in terms of appealing to in to the base the other reason it doesn't work in a system of compulsory voting is because in the US at least it, it sort of relies on a counter tactic as, as well of voter suppression. So not only are you focused on getting your base out to vote for you, you're focused on making sure people who wouldn't vote for you or who likely wouldn't vote for you don't go to the polls at all or that you make it as difficult and as annoying as possible for them to go and vote. And this is something we know. We know from the US context, and this is a historical problem that is only becoming worse, that this that voter suppression disproportionately affects black voters and Hispanic voters and, and minority voters. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And historically, that has always been the case. There have been enormous efforts at vi- often violent voter suppression since essentially formerly enslaved people were given the vote. So we see even in the post kind of civil war period in during the period known as reconstruction, we see massive efforts at basically violent repression of the black vote and also black candidates for office. So that has a long history that was in a way addressed in the 1960s during the civil rights movement when President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law, which actually prohibited racial discrimination in voting. So that was a kind of federal intervention into into voting rights to try and ensure that this kind of but essentially racist voter suppression didn't happen or it was at least made more difficult. Which and I think that's sort of bringing us to another key, key difference between the American electoral system and what we have in Australia, which is we have a very powerful, independent statutory authority in the Australian Electoral Commission, which runs our elections and is quite, you know, very clearly removed from political processes, notwithstanding Gladys Liu's dodgy, um, dodgy core flutes at the last federal election. Um but that, but you know, but even that, it's nowhere, it's nowhere near what we see in the USA, where typically where voting laws are set out by states, and where states and you know state politics has a huge influence on how how elections are run, right? 
Yeah, totally. I think Americans would see that, you know, that particular episode in Australian politics as like super cute because the 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 way that elections are run in the United States is completely political. As you say, it's 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 run essentially by states and and kind of at the local level by elected representatives. So they're not kind of apolitical appointees. These people are elected as representatives of parties in order to run elections. So it, it is a kind of partisan mess. And that's why voter suppression efforts are, have been historically so successful, because these systems are politically controlled by people who have an interest in making sure that, that votes are suppressed, and particularly the votes of African-American voters, of minority voters, are suppressed. And they do this in, in really creative ways, despite the fact that the Voting Rights despite the fact that the Voting Rights Act exists. Could you tell me more about some of those tactics they use? And also, I understand, you know, that old enemy of bipartisanship, the Supreme Court, I think that's had a role in watering down the Voting Rights Act recently. Is that right? Yeah, it was. So it was in 2013. So pretty recently, really, the Supreme Court struck down a key part of the Voting Rights Act. So it made it possible for states with with what is some of the worst records of voter discrimination to avoid federal oversight. So this this came up when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died because she wrote a really scathing dissent to this opinion, which was the quote about, you know, this is akin to throwing away your umbrella um, because you're in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And what this has meant that in subsequent elections, so in the most recent presidential election in 2016, black and Hispanic voters were much more likely to encounter barriers to voting. And this is happening again. You know, I've been reading stories about places like Texas and Florida where voter suppression is just kind of egregious. You know, the Republican controlled houses aren't even trying to hide what they're doing. You know, I think it's it's a really good reminder Firstly, that, yeah, as you say, voting, voter suppression in the US is part and parcel of American democracy. It is something that has gone on for decades, you know, you know, coming up on centuries. But also, I think, you know, the point that you've made about the Voting Rights Act, the fact that it came into being in the 1960s and then part of it has since been repealed in this decade just gone, it is another, I think, really important reminder that, American democracy for all that it talks about, you know, the all people will talk about one, you know, either it is the a system to admire and to aspire to despite all the evidence, but also the idea that it's a perfectible system and it's one that's, you know, that's co- constantly approaching something like perfection or it's constantly improving. That's not necessarily the case. And I think that, you know, we really do need to bear that in mind as we go, you know, I, I, I could not re- reiterate enough times that this election is really critical because it is an election that could, you know, see the US not just, you know, find itself in another four years of torpor and, and you know, I guess desolation because of Trump. It's something that could really go backwards and that is going backwards as we speak. Thanks for listening to Barely Getting By, American Carnage. If you haven't already, please make sure to sign up for our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes.